You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning, Harvest. Good morning. And if you've got your Bible there, uh, please go ahead and open it up to John chapter 4, verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46. And as you're turning there, I'd like to remind you that we are currently in a summer series entitled The Sign from God, where we are looking at the miracles of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. Last week, we began with Jesus' first sign, where he turned water into wine. Pastor Carl led us through that. This week, we'll be looking at Jesus' second sign, which is this. A sign of life. A sign of life. And as we consider these signs from God, we have to keep this in mind. That signs from God are always intended that that we would look back to God and find all we need in God. The signs from God are are always intended that, that it would point us back to God, that we would then find all we need in God, including this, life itself. Life itself. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Abundantly. Meaning that Jesus came to earth. He died on a cross in our place so that we would no longer be void of life, but rather we would be filled with life, that we would have exceedingly more life, that we would have life that is beyond all measure, that we would be filled with a super overabundance of life in him. And so what exactly is this life, and where does it come from? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 17. He said this, he said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, sometimes we think about eternal life as meaning living forever, or we think of eternal life as something that just happens after we pass away, but that's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life as knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. So eternal life is not just knowing about God, but it's knowing God, truly knowing God. It's not just knowing about Jesus Christ, but truly knowing Jesus Christ, both right now, this morning, and for all of eternity. Therefore, therefore, the essence of all true life is this. It's knowing God and being filled with joy in him. That is the essence of all true life. It is knowing God, truly knowing him, and then being filled with joy in him. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing better than that because he is true life. But how do we grab hold of life? Maybe you've heard that phrase, seeing is believing. Have you heard that before? Well, in, in, in the physical world, that's true. A seeing is believing. We see something and then we believe it. But when it comes to spiritual matters, it's exactly the opposite. Because in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And we can think of it this way. That believing is the seeing that leads to life, obedience, and joy in God. Let me say that again. Believing is the seeing that leads to life and obedience and true joy in God. Therefore, if we want to have lives that are characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, 
then we must believe this. And this leads us to our first point. We must believe this, that Jesus is my greatest need and I must seek him. I must believe that Jesus is my greatest need and that I must, I must, I must seek him. Have a look at John chapter 4, verse 46. Here we go, here we go. And so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And so Jesus arrives in Cana, and then 15 miles down the road from Cana is a place called Capernaum. And we're told that in Capernaum, there was an official. And so that means that there's a man who is an employee of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. So this official works for him. And here's what we know about him if he's an official. He's a very powerful man. He's a very wealthy man. And we know this, that he is a man who is in a deep personal family crisis because his son is ill. Have a look at verse 47. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now notice, notice that when this, this, this man, he heard that Jesus was in, in, in uh, Galilee, see, Jesus is causing quite a stir, uh, so much so that the people in Cana are hearing when Jesus arrives uh, in, in Galilee uh, in, uh, 15 miles away. It's kind of like you're looking through your Twitter feed and you see that Justin Bieber, he just arrived in Hamilton. You're like, what? And you get in your car and you drive there right away? Maybe not, maybe not. Okay, all right. But people are definitely excited about Jesus and here's why. Matthew chapter four tells us why. This is what it says, I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction uh, among the people. So there is a huge stir about Jesus. People are excited about Jesus. People are flocking to Jesus. And when this official hears that that Jesus who heals sick people, he's only 15 miles that way, he jumps on his horse and he takes off to go and find this Jesus. Have a look again at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. So this man races to Cana. He finds Jesus, and he asks him. And this word asked is not a casual ask. It's not like, hey, Jesus, uh, could you come heal my son? It's not casual. This word asked, uh, it implies a begging or a pleading. This man may have actually fallen on his knees before Jesus, and he's just begging. He's like, please, 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 come heal my son, please. You're my only hope, please. And so how does Jesus then respond to this broken, suffering father? We'll have a look at verse 48. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now it's interesting that the word you here is plural. So yes, Jesus is speaking to the man, but in a greater way, he's speaking to the crowds, to the Galileans. And essentially, he's saying this. He's saying, unless you Galileans see signs and wonders, you will not believe that I'm the Messiah. Because for them, seeing was believing. And that's a problem. 
Because in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. So Jesus is warning them about the danger of their unbelief, and here's why. Because their unbelief was keeping them from seeing him as the Messiah, which was keeping them from eternal life, which was keeping them from joy in God. But how exactly does this warning apply to this suffering, grieving father? Well, let's have a look one more time at verse 47 for a clue. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Notice he asked him to come down to his house. So what does that imply about what this man believes about Jesus? Here's what it implies. It implies that he believes Jesus can only heal his son if he's physically present at his house. Notice he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. He doesn't say that. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, just just speak the word and my son will be healed. He doesn't say that. And the reason he doesn't say that is because he doesn't believe that. But consider what is actually taking place in this moment. In this moment, this man is looking face to face at God. He is right there with the Lord God Almighty. He's speaking to God. He's looking into the eyes of the one who spoke the whole universe into existence. And not only that, but but who has sovereignly drawn this man to himself through the illness of his son so that he could have this conversation with him right now about his unbelief. Awesome. Awesome. He is awesome. And why has he done this? Here's why. Because he loves this man, and he wants him to believe and receive eternal life. Now, if a person runs into an emergency room, and they have a sliver in their finger, and they have an arrow in their back, what would you say is the more pressing issue of the day? It's the arrow. It's the arrow. But what if the doctors rushed over and said, oh my goodness, that is, a, that is a brutal sliver. Let me pull that sliver out for you. And they kind of put a Band-Aid on it and then they send them on their way. Not great, right? Not great. What if someone comes limping into the emergency room and they've got like a, a, a scrape on their ear from like the claw of an animal and they have a raccoon attached to their leg and it's biting them and it has rabies. What is the most pressing issue of the day? It's the raccoon. This guy, this person has a raccoon issue. But what if the, the doctors run over and say, wow, it looks like you have a scrape on your ear from like an animal or something. That's, and then they kind of, not great, right? Not great. Likewise, likewise, Jesus is not content to just heal this man's son. He cares about this man's son. He wants to heal this man's son, but he's not content. He wants to go after the most pressing issue of the day, which is this man's salvation. And not just his salvation, but the salvation of his family as well. Because in this moment, here's what the man is believing. He's believing that Jesus is his son's greatest need because his son is sick. He isn't believing that Jesus is his greatest need. And I wonder... Do we believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your greatest need right now? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is my greatest need right now? Well, maybe you're wondering, well, what do you mean exactly by greatest need? Well, here's here's what I mean. All of us need this. First and foremost, we need salvation. 
We need salvation. Our sin has separated us from God. But God has made a way that we can be reconciled back to him. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth. He died on a cross taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He bore the wrath of God in our place. So that if anyone here places their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they can be reconciled back to God. They can have their sins forgiven and be reconciled back to God. Jesus Christ is our greatest need because through faith in him we receive forgiveness of sins and gain access to God. Awesome. Awesome. He is our greatest need, uh, first and foremost, because he is our salvation, but also this. He is our greatest need because we need to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. We need to be saved in Jesus Christ, but we also need to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by satisfied. That each one of us has an irresistible craving, an urge, a hunger, a thirst on the inside of us to experience something so much bigger and greater than ourselves. What is that? How did that get there? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, that God has put eternity into man's heart, meaning that craving, that hunger, that thirst that we all have on the inside of us has been placed there by God so we would seek to satisfy that craving in God. Psalm 16, verse 11, such a precious verse, says this, that, that in your presence is what? Fullness of Joy in your presence is fullness of joy. And if we believe, Psalm 16, that in the presence of Jesus Christ is the fullness of joy, is the joy that I'm searching for. If I believe that, then we will go to Jesus and we will seek the joy that we crave in him. But here's the problem. So often, we just don't believe Psalm 16, verse 11, as we should. So often, I don't believe Psalm 16, verse 11, as I should. And so what do we do when we don't believe Psalm 16, verse 11, that the joy we're actually seeking is found in Jesus Christ? Here's what we do. We pull ourselves up to the table of the world, and we start to eat. And we start to eat. And, and we fill ourselves up at the table of the world until there is no room left for God, and we are bloated and totally and completely unsatisfied. This is how John Piper puts it up on the screen. He said this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room left for the great. So let me ask you, let me ask you, when you are tempted to pull up to the table of the world and start to eat, so to speak, what is it that you are typically filling yourself with? What is it that you are typically filling yourself with? Is it, is it stuff? Is it the latest, the greatest? Is it just stuff? Is it buying stuff? Is it food? Is it entertainment? Is it, is it hobbies? Is it some secret sin? What is it for you? What are you tempted to fill up on? Because here's what we need to see, and we need to see it right 
now. Here's what we need to see. That when we are filling ourselves up on the things of the world, we are literally allowing idols to rob us of our joy in God. When we are filling up on the things of the world, we are allowing idols to rob us of our joy in God. We are forfeiting the joy that could be ours in Jesus Christ because we are choosing to fill up on the world. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is this. It's repentance. It's repentance. We need to turn away from the table of the world and we need to learn how to fight for our joy in God. We need to to turn away from the table of the world. We need to learn how to fight for our joy in God. And we fight for our joy in God by believing Psalm 16 verse 11 that the joy that we are actually seeking is only found in his presence. Because as we truly believe that, then we will go to God, we will seek God, we will seek God in word and in prayer. And as we do that, we will grow in our love for him. We will choose to get alone with God and meet with him and we will grow in our love for him. We will pursue intimacy and fellowship with God and we will grow in our love for him. And Psalm 16 verse 11 will prove true in our lives and we will find what we actually crave in him. But it begins with this. It begins with believing. Believing. Really believing it. So let me ask you. Are you in a place right now in your life where you really aren't seeking the Lord as you should? Are you in a place here this morning when, if you're honest, you would say, I'm not really seeking the Lord as I I should? And I think we can all be in that place sometimes. Is that true? It's true. We can all be in that place sometimes. So what should we do? One word, belief. Belief. Believe. We need to believe the truth of Psalm 16, verse 11, that, that what we truly seek is joy in the presence of God, because if we believe that, we will seek him. But what if I have trouble believing that? I want to believe that. I desperately want to believe that, but I just, I'm having trouble. What do we do? Here's what we do. We must pray. We must pray. We must ask the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our heart to believe. And God loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer because believing is the seeing that leads to life and joy and obedience. And if we want to have lives that are characterized by true life, and obedience to God, and true joy in God, then I must believe that Jesus is, he is my greatest need, and I must seek him. Amen? Amen. Amen. That leads us right into our second point, which is this. If I want my life to be characterized by true life, and obedience, and joy in God, then I must believe this. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth, and I must obey him. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth and I must obey him. Have a look at verse 49. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now check out amazing verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now consider it. 
This man is in a place of total desperation. Jesus is his absolute last hope. He's convinced that if I can just get him down to my house, he's going to heal my son. But then Jesus says this to him. He says, go home. I'm not going with you. Go home without me. Your son will live. And so how does the man respond? Does he start to pull out some money and try to bribe Jesus to come down to his house? Does he flex his authority to try to threaten Jesus? Does he say, hey, hey, don't you know who I am? I can have you killed today. Well, look how he responds. Verse 50, verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The man believes Jesus, and then he obeys Jesus. He believes Jesus, and then he does what Jesus tells him to do, and he leaves. His obedience is entirely rooted in his believing. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now imagine... If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, 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 I just really want to bless you, and so here's what I've decided to do. Don't try to stop me. Don't, I'm going to deposit $5 million into your bank account with my mind. With my mind, all right? So I just want to tell you that I'm going to do that so when you look at your bank balance, you're not confused. And so here I go. Mm, bam! It's done. See ya. I want you to ask yourself honestly, Okay? How many of us, how many of us would secretly kind of get out our phones and check our bank balance? Right? How many? Just me? Just me? Okay. Uh, why would we do that? He said he put it in with his mind. Why would we? But what would be harder to believe? A man who says he can deposit money with his mind or a man who says he can heal your relatives from a distance? Because that's what Jesus is calling this man to believe. And then, and then suddenly, he just believes it. He just believes it. So how did that happen? How did he go from begging Jesus to come to his house to believing Jesus just healed his son and then leaving? How does that happen? Well, look at verse 50. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus said to him. That's what changed his heart. The word of God changed his heart. Amen. Amen. This happened. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the... That's right. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So as we hear the words of Christ, the spirit of God is opening up the eyes of our hearts to, to believe and to have spiritual sight, which is why we cannot take credit for anything. We can't take credit for anything. We can't even take credit for believing. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit, which is why God gets all of the glory. And as this man hears Jesus say, go, your son will live, something starts to happen on the inside of him, and he believes, and then he sees that his son will live, so he gets back on his horse, and he takes off. How fast do you think he went going home? So he's got 15 miles to go to get home. Do you think he took off in a gallop and galloped all the way home? Or do you think maybe he just kind of 
took the reins of the horse and kind of led the horse along and then sort of at a snail's pace sort of walked home. How many people think he galloped? Let's take a gallop poll. All right, okay. So, so let's see, how fast did he go? Let's look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So does that tell us how fast he went? It does. Verse 52 says that his servants come to meet him, and then he asks his servants what time his son started to get better, and they say to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. That means yesterday at one o'clock. Did you catch that? Yesterday. And so the man leaves Jesus. He jumps on a horse at one o'clock, and, but, but he doesn't get even close to home until the next day. He's only got 15 miles to go, but he doesn't even get close to home until the next day. So here's the answer. He went very, very slow. Very slow. He went at a snail's pace. And so what was he doing all that time? Well, consider the state of this man as he's on his way to Jesus. He's fearful. He's worried. He's desperate. Consider his state now leaving Jesus, believing that his son will live. He is calm. He is thankful. He is at peace. And obviously, he's in absolutely no hurry. And so we don't know where he went or what he did. The text doesn't tell us, but we do know this, that he believed Jesus. And because he believed Jesus, he obeyed Jesus and left for home. Let's look at a couple of signs here up on the screen. We'll begin with this one. Has anyone ever seen this sign before? Can anyone tell me what this sign means? What does this sign mean? Anyone? Electrical danger, right? Electrical danger. So if we believe this sign that there's electrical danger, then what do we do? We stay away, right? If we believe there's electrical danger, if we believe the sign, then we obey the sign. How about this next sign? Okay, what does this sign mean? Anyone? Radiation, right. And so if we believe the sign that there's radiation, what do we do? We stay away, right? If we believe the sign, then we obey the sign. How about this sign? This sign says, caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And if we believe this sign, we've totally missed the joke, but that's okay. That's okay. I thought that was funny. All right, here's the point. If you believe the sign, then you obey. And this man was given a sign from God. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the man believed, and because he believed, he obeyed. Because he believed, he obeyed. Three questions for us. Here's the first one. In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? Second question. What are you believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? What are you currently believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? Third question. 
What do you need to believe to actually move out of that place? What must you believe to move out of that place of disobedience? So three questions again. In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? Second question. What are you currently believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? Third question, what do you need to believe to move out of that place? And God has been using these three questions in my life this week to show me again where I need to grow and change. I need to grow and change. And I want to zoom in on that last question. What do we need to believe to move out of that place of disobedience? And let's look at something that Jesus says to all of us here this morning, something that we all need to believe, something that applies to every single one of us in every single one of our situations. And I'll give you a paraphrase first, and then we'll look at the scripture. Here's what Jesus says to every single one of us this morning. He says this. He says, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey me. And if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you love me, you will obey me. And if you obey me, you will be blessed. And maybe you're thinking, well, where exactly did Jesus say that? Well, let's look at two places. John 13. John 13. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. He's giving them a powerful object lesson. Here he says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A few verses later he says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them, if you do them. And so he's commanding his disciples to sacrificially and radically love people. He's saying, if you know these things, which they now do and we do also, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, blessed how exactly? Well, God can choose to bless whatever way God wants to bless but let's look like the best way, okay? The best way. John 14, 21, Jesus said this. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And notice this, and manifest myself to him. What an awesome promise. He promises that that if we love him, then we will obey him, and if we obey him, he will manifest himself to us. He will manifest his presence to us. And if we believe the truth of Psalm 16, verse 11, that the joy we seek is in the manifest presence of God, and that as we obey God, he's gonna manifest himself to us, then we will obey then we will obey if we believe, if we believe. And you know, it's so easy, so easy just to say we believe. That's not hard. It's so easy to say we believe, but we need to, we need to ask ourselves, is the kind of believing that I have actually producing obedience? Is my believing actually producing obedience. We can think of it this way. 
all of us kind of have these two different theologies. Let's throw this up on the screen. We have a spoken theology. It's what we say we believe. But then we have this. We have a lived out theology that shows what we really believe. So we have a spoken theology. We can say, yes, I believe Psalm 16 verse 11. I believe that the joy that I crave is only found in the presence of God. We can say, yes, I believe John 14, 21, that as I obey, Jesus will manifest himself to me and I will have more joy that I know what to do with. We, we say we believe that, but then there's the way we live. And there's a gap. There's a gap between our spoken theology and our lived out theology, and that gap is made up of unbelief. And so we believe these things, and on some level we do. We do believe these things, but then there's the way that we actually live. And as that gap gets bigger and bigger between our spoken theology and our lived out theology, the less joy we will have in God. But the reverse is also true. As that gap starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller between our spoken theology and our lived out theology, the more joy we will have in God. So the question is, how does that gap get smaller? How does that take place? One word, believing, believing, believing. So let me ask you, let me ask you, are you in a place where you would say that your spoken theology and your lived out theology are pretty far apart? Because if you're anything like me, you're like, yeah, they are. But I want them to be like this. I want my spoken theology and my lived out theology to be the same thing. What do we do? What do we do? What must we do? Well, here's what we must do. We must truly believe John 14, 21, that Jesus will keep his word. He will manifest himself to us as we obey. He will. He will. But maybe you're thinking, I'm just, I'm struggling to believe that. I want to believe that. But I'm struggling. What do I do? There's only one thing we can do. We must pray. We must pray and ask the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts to believe. And God loves to answer that prayer. And here's why. Because it brings him glory. It brings him glory. Because believing is the seeing that leads to life and obedience and joy in God. And when that's happening in us, when there is true life and obedience and joy in God happening in us, that glorifies God. So God loves to answer that prayer. Therefore, therefore, if we want lives that are characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, then I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth. And I must obey him. Which leads us right into our third and our final point this morning, which is this. If we want lives characterized by true life and obedience and true joy in God, then I must believe this. I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I must point others to him. I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I must point others to him. Have a look again at verse 51. Verse 51 as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So the man is heading back to Capernaum. 
He's on a collision course with his servants that are headed toward him. When they meet, he asks them this strange question. He says, uh, what time did he start to get better? They say to him, one o'clock in the afternoon, yesterday. But why does he want to talk about the time? Why does the father want to talk about the time? Here's why. Because he knew that it was at one o'clock that Jesus had said, go, your son will live. And so here's what he's really asking them, okay? He's really asking his servants this. Did it happen at one? Did it happen at one? Was it at one? Tell me. Did it happen at one? I want to know. Did it happen at one? Because he wants to hear more. He wants to hear more about what God did. And don't we all? I mean, that's why we love baptisms. That's why we love testimonies. That's why we love hearing glory stories. We want to fill our hearts with stories about what God has done. Now check this out. As the servants say to him, yesterday at one o'clock the fever left him, what do you think is playing over and over and over again in this man's mind? Well, have a look at verse 53. Verse 53 says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So in this moment, his mind is filled with the word of God. Your son will live. Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. It's like an audio loop playing in his mind. And in this moment, the Lord does a new thing in him. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. In the glory of this moment, with the word of God ringing in his heart, he believes that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. He believes that yesterday he was standing face to face with God at one o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, awesome, awesome. And in that moment, he arrives home. He arrives home. He gets saved, and then he arrives home. Now imagine that moment. He's walking through the door. There's my tears still running down his face. He sees his wife. He embraces his wife. And he turns to see his son who is standing. And he embraces his son and sits them both down and explains to them what really happened. What really happened. Because from their perspective, his son was sick. And then suddenly he just got better. They don't know that Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And look what happens next. Verse 53. It says, And he himself believed and all his household. So as he tells them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, they believe that he's the Messiah. They place their faith in him and his whole family gets saved. What an awesome day. What an awesome day. This is a great, great day. His son gets healed. He gets saved. His whole family gets saved. And the day isn't over yet. The day isn't over. Look back at verse 53. It says that he himself believed and all his household. And that word household does not mean just his family members, but his servants as well. And so the servants are all gathered around. They're listening to the story, hearing about who Jesus is, what Jesus did. They believe and eternal life just sweeps through the house. Are you kidding me? This is absolutely awesome. As the father is pointing his household to Jesus Christ, they all believe absolutely awesome and such an important principle for us. And here it is, that if, if we truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if we believe that, if we love him, 
if we truly love him, if we believe that he is the greatest treasure in the universe, then we will not be able to help but point others to him. We won't be able to help it if we believe, if we believe. Now, when you come across an amazing new restaurant, okay? You go there for the first time, you sit down, the food is unbelievable, it's super cheap, you're like, wow, this place is amazing. What's the first thing you wanna do? You wanna tell someone about it, right? But you don't wanna just tell them about it, you want them to go and experience it. And you don't want them to just go and experience it, you want them to go and experience it with you so you can watch them enjoy it because as you see them enjoy it, it increases your enjoyment. Because when we see someone taking joy in what we take joy in, it only increases our joy. Likewise, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and if we love him, and if we believe he is the greatest treasure in the universe, then we will not be able to help but point others to him. In 3 John, the apostle wrote, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He had no greater joy than to hear that those he had discipled were loving and obeying Jesus Christ. That increased his joy in Jesus Christ. And here's how this applies to us. When Jesus commands us to point others to him, when Jesus commands us to make disciples, he is also commanding us to enter into our greatest joy in him. Look at what he says in in, uh, Matthew 28. He says, go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, look at this promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, is this a promise of Jesus' omnipresence? Is Jesus saying, I am omnipresent, I will be everywhere at once, therefore, in that sense, I will be with you too? That's not the promise. The promise here is that Jesus will manifest himself in a special way to us as we get about the business of making disciples. Let me ask you, let me ask you, are you pointing people to Jesus Christ? Are you involved in some way in making disciples? Because if you're not, then you are forfeiting joy in the Lord. I mean, why is it that people get so fired up when they go on a missions trip? Here's why. Because they are pointing to him. They are seeking to make disciples. They are sharing their faith and God is manifesting himself and they come back and they are so fired up, aren't they? It's awesome to see. They're so fired up. But what if, what if this became the new normal in our lives? What if that became the new normal in our lives? being fired up about making disciples. Well, how would that happen? One word, believing. Believing, believing. And as the worship team comes up, let me ask you, are you in a place in your life right now where you would say, I'm not really pointing others to Jesus Christ as I should. I have a desire to do that, but I'm not really acting on it. I'm not really doing it. And I think we could say all of us need to grow in this. Would you agree? All of us. All of us need to grow in making disciples. So what should we do? Here's what we must do. We must believe Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, when he says he will manifest himself, he will be with us, he will be moving, he'll be providing all the grace we need, he'll be manifesting himself as we point others to him. 
Or maybe you're thinking, I have trouble believing that, though. I want to believe that, but I have trouble. What should we do? We must pray. We must pray. We must pray and ask the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts to believe, to believe. And God loves to answer that prayer because it brings him glory. It brings him glory. Therefore, therefore, if we want lives that are characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, then I must believe that Jesus is my greatest need and I must seek him. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth and I must obey him. And this, I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I must point others to him. Amen? Amen, church. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you this morning so much for your word. Thank you so much that we can open it up and read this factual account of what happened in this family, this official's family, where you you showed up in their lives and you radically saved the official and his, his, his whole family. You healed his son physically and you saved the whole family and all his household. And God, you are able to do that today as well. You are able to do that in our families, Lord. So God, we ask you now, would you please move in our hearts? Would you please open up the eyes of our hearts to see, to believe that we would be a people who are fighting for our joy in God? That we would be a people who are not filling ourselves up on the things of the world to the point where we have no more room for God? but that we would be a people who are feasting on the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.